Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. New media changes culture, and when it comes to religion, new technology changes the way people think and practice their traditions. And while we usually think of technology as some new gadget or some new machine, there was a time when the written word itself was a new technology, and this had a profound impact on how Buddhism was practiced in South and Southeast Asia. This is the subject of Daniel Weidlinger's new book, Spreading the Dhamma, Writing, Orality, and Textual Transmission in Buddhist Northern Thailand. In today's show, we'll talk with Daniel about his book and some of the other books that changed Buddhism in Thailand. Of course, these books were the books of the Buddhist canon, a canon that, when printed in modern volumes, is some 15,000 pages long. But a millennia ago, these texts were carved into palm leaves and just as likely to be memorized as they were read and studied. How did this new technology change Buddhists' relationship with the teachings of the Buddha? And what might this bit of Buddhist history tell us about similar changes in media technology in our contemporary world? Hi, Daniel. Are you there? Yes, I am. Um, thanks for talking to the New Books Network in uh, New Books and Buddhist Studies today. Um, today we're going to be talking right. about your book, uh, Spreading the Dhamma, Writing, Orality, and Textual Transmission in Buddhist Northern Thailand. Um, I've had a chance to, to look at the book, and I can highly recommend it. It's a very interesting uh, uh, work that sheds some light on how, uh, in this case, a, a particular kind of technology can change the way that Buddhism is is practiced. Um, so to, to get the ball rolling, Daniel, I thought I would um, have you give our listeners a little um, background in how you became interested not only in the study of Buddhism, but in this particular topic. Well, thank you. Um, I got interested in the study of Buddhism in my undergraduate years when I was, um, in fact, I started my college career in physics, uh, wanting to be like a theoretical physicist or something like that. Um, but then I changed to religious studies because I felt that the kinds of questions that I was interested in were um, approached in a more interesting manner through philosophy and religion than they were through physics, which really, interesting as it is, the study of physics in a formal uh, manner really involves a lot of number crunching. <laughs> And uh, I just found that some of the questions that I had were not that well uh, addressed in that forum. So I moved into religious studies, and uh, within that I found Buddhism uh, was the most interesting to me. It answered a lot of questions that I had. It's... uh, uh, its ideas spoke to me. Although I am not a Buddhist practitioner, I certainly am very interested, uh, you know, more than just in an academic manner, in the kinds of ideas that Buddhism uh, talks about. And in fact, I've noticed that a number of people who are interested in Buddhist studies also uh, have an interest in uh, scientific developments and physics and that sort of thing. You, you might know that there's been a number of books written, in fact, right, about right. connections between Buddhist metaphysics and the kind of strange world that quantum mechanics seems to show uh, may exist. So um, 
that's kind of how I got interested in Buddhism, and then I took it from there through graduate studies, um, where I studied in the South Asian department at uh, the University of Chicago. So I did not do a degree in religious studies per se, mm -hmm. but more in area studies. Uh, because I was also interested, as I developed in my career, in not just Buddhism per se, but also the politics and economics and other features of that whole region of the world. Okay. Then in terms of... Oh, sure. if you want me to then expand to the specific topic of the book, uh, I could say a, a couple things. I actually am from Toronto, Canada. Uh, that's where I grew up. And uh, in Toronto, there is a, a, a strong sort of... Um, feeling in the air of media studies. As uh, your listeners might know, the father of media studies is Marshall McLuhan, a Canadian scholar. Right, right. And he set up a whole institute for the study of media and culture at the University of Toronto. And his shadow does uh, fall heavily <laughs> on the Toronto area. Like, you just hear his ideas being talked about in many, um, in many different forums. Sort of walking uh, Growing the up there. <laughs> Yeah, honestly. Well, you know, the CBC radio was a big presence in Canada and was in my life uh, growing up. We used to listen to it a lot, and they would talk about his ideas every now and then, and just the whole idea of radio going out to the vast uh, areas of Canada and kind of bringing the, this huge country together um, sure. is something that you really can't avoid growing up in Canada. <laughs> you know, you know that the country exists because of media. Yeah. You know, it's such a big and empty country that there just wouldn't be any cohesion without it. So that's kind of a way that I got interested in media studies. So this book allowed me to join my two interests into one. Great. Yeah, that's that's. I, I love the opening of your book where you actually talk about McLuhan. I think it's um, you make a lot. You're of, right. Uh, yeah, I know. It's interesting that he was ridiculed in his day because people felt that his ideas were quite ridiculous, <laughs> and of course, many of them. Turned, in fact, one of the things he said, believe it or not, was that he said somewhere that he believes that someday in the future, people will watch um, will watch programs about the weather on television uh, without, you know, going outside to see what the weather's like. And indeed, you know, weather TV is a big deal nowadays. People yeah, watch yeah. it a lot, and weather.com is a very important website as well. Right, and it's not just the, the, weather, the weather channel, but, you know, there's weather shows about the weather on, on other, other networks. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Tornado chasing is like the biggest pastime nowadays. So, yeah. Um, so, so you do open the book with this, uh, the, the, the sort of the thing we take for granted nowadays that human culture and, uh, I think you say something like human culture and technology arise in tandem. Um, right. and, and it's interesting to read that and think, oh, you're talking about, uh, writing itself as a technology, which I think we, you know, so far removed from the, you know, invention, if you will, of writing, take writing for granted, um, and forget that it would have been a new technology at some point in history. Um, so I think that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, so that we think of the word technology as referring to very advanced things like cell phones or the internet or whatever, but technology is simply some sort of physical item that helps achieve some uh, human aim. So, you know, a pen is a technology as well. So is a piece of paper. Right, and, and it's interesting to, to sort of keep in mind that in the very beginning of Buddhist history, there, there really was no writing, or that writing was absolutely a new thing shortly That's after, right. or if you could expand on that, well, <laughs> sort of set the yeah, stage. Yeah, this is a very, yeah, 
This is a very tricky question because uh, since there wasn't much writing in ancient India, there's not that many records to tell us about this, the position of writing. Mm-hmm. But basically, it seems that there was definitely not writing in India during the time of the Buddha. Now, uh, in India, before the Buddha, there does seem to have been writing, in fact. The earliest civilization in India is known as the Indus Valley Civilization, and it flourished about 2000 B.C., uh, so contemporary with the Mesopotamian Empire, for example. Mm-hmm. And in Mesopotamia, there was writing at that period, as there was in Egypt, and there was writing in uh, the Indus Valley as well. But that civilization collapsed, maybe about uh, um, 18, 17, 1800 B.C. And then a new civilization emerged in India, known as the Aryan Civilization, and mm-hmm. the Buddha was part of that civilization. And they did not have writing. So before Buddhism emerged, um, the, the, uh, the Vedas were very important texts in ancient India, and they're the foundational texts of the religion that today is known as Hinduism. Um, and they were for sure memorized orally. They were not written down. And the Buddha who lived, uh, you know, it's impossible to say exactly, but about 500 B.C., um, definitely lived during a period in which writing still had not... Uh, come back to India. So the first evidence of any writing at all in India is from the inscriptions of the great Buddhist emperor called King Ashoka. Mm -hmm. And those inscriptions are from the middle of the third century, so about 250 BC, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a full 200, let's say about 200 years after the death of the Buddha. So it does seem, and there's no evidence whatsoever for writing before that in India. Uh, So although some people have thought that the Buddha must have had writing simply because of the complexity of the ideas represented in the Buddhist texts, serious uh, scholarly investigation into the question has shown that there is no evidence of of writing uh, in India before the period of Ashoka. So that is to say, two centuries after the Buddha. So that means means that if there was no writing, I know it's hard to believe. (laughs) But the only answer is that all the teachings of the Buddha, which total something like 15,000 pages in in a modern printed edition, Uh were memorized orally. So for people (laughs) listening who have a a test coming up where they have to memorize, you know, uh, um, the Declaration of Independence or something like that, (laughs) you should know that... nothing compared. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right, it's sort of it's sort of hard to to wrap your mind around it, considering how you know we take for granted books <laughs> or writing in general. Right. To imagine that for two hundred, three hundred years, uh, all of this information was contained in people's memories. That's um, right. Now it seems to me that the book, the the your book, though, uh, sort of goes into the future a bit, right? Because you're talking about uh, uh, Thailand and a particular kingdom in Thailand. Um, Maybe a thousand years later, two thousand years later, uh, quite a while after the the possible invention of, of writing in India, correct? That's right. Uh, there's a number of reasons that I look at that uh, uh, that I look at that kingdom. Uh, the the kingdom is called Lana, uh-huh. which um, was a kingdom that flourished in northern Thailand from let's say the 13th century until uh, the 20th century, mm-hmm. and 
basically, the Thai people, from what we know, did not really have writing amongst themselves until quite late, maybe about the, the 13th century, in fact. So even though writing in India was developed uh, about, as we said, 250 BC, in Thailand, which adopted a lot of Indian culture, um, writing was not, well, sorry, amongst the Thai speakers uh, in Thailand, writing <laughs> was not really known until about the 13th century. So that's only 700 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much, much more recently. And the thing that makes it so interesting is that because of the recent arrival of writing amongst the Thai-speaking people, uh, it is much more easy to get documentation of that early period when writing was just being transformed, sorry, when the oral tradition was being transformed into a written tradition. So that's the reason that I chose this, um, this Buddhist kingdom to look at. So, for example, there are early manuscripts there that are not that far uh, from the period in which the the oral tradition became a written tradition, right? So, so uh, what was Lana right like as a as a kingdom or a culture prior to uh, the introduction of, of written culture? Was Buddhism a big presence there? How you know what was the society like? Well, um, the let's be clear. So, in the region that we today call Thailand, mm-hmm. right, there are many different. Um, ethnic and cultural groups living there. As, well, not so much today, although there certainly are still present today, but in the, in the past, there were a number of very strong cultural groups there, um, of which the Thai were just one. And over hundreds of years, the Thai came to achieve hegemony over that whole area. But in the, uh, let's say, a thousand years ago, uh, the Mon people were very, very prominent in that region. And they did have writing um, amongst the Mon people. Mm-hmm. And the Mon were, um, were a people, they still exist, uh, there are still Mon speakers, although far fewer than there used to be. But they had a period in which, uh, let's say from the 6th century to about the 9th century, uh, there was a great Mon Buddhist empire that is often known as Dvaravati, that's the name of it, and it occupied a lot of Thailand, a lot of what is today called Thailand, and Burma as well. And they seem to have a form of, um, a form of Theravada Buddhism that they practiced, and they did have writing, how do we know? Because there are still inscriptions uh, existing from that period uh, that we can read. And on those inscriptions, one finds things like some of the basic Buddhist ideas or the Four Noble Truths or the, um, the Buddhist uh, catechism and these kinds of things. So, yeah, we know that there was a Mon Empire before the Thais ever got to that region that had writing. Um, so the Thais got there around the 13th century and different Thai uh, principalities were established. So there was one in northern Thailand that we call Lana, and they were Thai people. And then there was also one south of Lana called Sukhothai, also populated by Thai-speaking peoples, but they spoke a slightly different dialect of Thai and had a, a different identity. Uh, the main difference between the central Thai kingdoms uh, and the northern Thai ones has to do with the influence of Cambodia. Because uh, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of one of the largest religious monuments on the face of the earth called Angkor Wat. Mm. Uh, and it's a magnificent structure. 
uh, and it's a relic of the great Cambodian Empire known as the Khmer Empire. And they, at that period, ruled much of Southeast Asia as well. Uh, but not so much northern Thailand. Mm-hmm. But so central Thailand was very influenced by Cambodian language and culture, whereas northern Thailand was less influenced by it. Mm-hmm. So that's not too long an answer to your <laughs> question. But no, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's totally fascinating. This, you know, I, feel, I feel like this is a part of the world that many people have knowledge of, but not in this sort of depth and complexity. Um, Absolutely. Re- yeah, I, do book, want to I, could just, I could just see, you know, this whole other culture and, and thinking about what was going on in other parts of the world and thinking, oh, this is a part of the world that is completely unknown to, to me and I'm sure many people. So um, it's a fascinating uh, uh, sort of picture of this, this little corner of the world that we kind of <laughs> don't know that much right, about. We know about the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. that's a lot of the uh, knowledge of Southeast Asia and America comes from, you know, the Vietnam War, um, which is... Uh, certainly an important feature of the development of Southeast Asia, but just one of many. Right, right. And uh, it's a fascinating part of the world and understudied. It is for sure understudied. For example, in Thailand, there are, uh, I'm not sure exactly the latest demographics, but maybe 70 or 80 million people, uh, of whom 95% at least are Theravada Buddhists. Right. Uh, Whereas in Tibet, there are probably 5 or 6 million people but there's certainly as many scholars of Tibetan Buddhism as there are of Thai Buddhism, probably more, right. even though there's more than 10 times as many uh, Thai. So it's a very interesting part of the world. Uh, and again, in, especially in ancient times, there were so many different uh, groups conquering different areas that it became very what today would be called multicultural. <laughs> I like to think of it as kind of a harbinger of the modern world with people with hybrid identities, speaking many different languages, um, having different religious ideas coming and going. It's a very interesting part of the world. And I recommend that your listeners learn more about <laughs> Southeast Asia. Um, well, on that note, uh, in, in the book, you talk about some of the ways that different kinds of Buddhism came to, uh, to, to Lanna in this part of Thailand, um, specifically certain ordination lineages and uh, certain monks from Sri Lanka are coming. Um, if you could just, you know, give us some ideas about some of these figures that you're talking about and some of the events that you, you mention uh, in your book. Right. Well, yes, it's, it's interesting that... Amongst the Theravada Buddhist world, and just to be clear, uh, Buddhism is divided into various schools, uh, just like many religions have different major groups, and one of them is Mahayana Buddhism, which developed later, about 2,000 years ago. Uh, The earliest form of Buddhism is known as Theravada, although um, it is obviously different from the actual teachings of the Buddha. Uh, we do seem to think that the texts of Theravada Buddhism are are closer to the actual teachings of uh, this prince from India that is known as the Buddha uh, than Mahayana Buddhism. And so Theravada Buddhism is practiced mostly in Southeast Asia. And the monks of Theravada Buddhism are very concerned uh, about the purity of the ordination lineage. Mm -hmm. So that means when you become a monk, there's various ceremonies that take place in order to make you into a monk. And certain things have to be said, certain actions, uh, ritual actions have to be done. And of course, like um, all religions, the rituals have to be done properly in Buddhism. Um, And therefore, there has always been anxiety amongst 
different orders of monks, that perhaps at some point in the past, the ordination was not done properly. Mm -hmm. And that means that from that point on, you know, all the monks are not really full monks. Right. right? There's this danger uh, if the rituals are not done properly. So every now and then, um, there are... Uh, there are um, expeditions that take place where monks will go to different areas where they believe the ordination is more pure than their own. So this took place uh, several times in the history of Southeast Asia. And there was a lot of traveling between countries. So you might have the monks of Thailand feeling that their ordination should be renewed, so they'll go to Sri Lanka, be reordained there, mm -hmm. and then come back and do the rituals um, to reordain people in Thailand. And then the Burmese might go to Sri Lanka. And then Sri Lanka might uh, feel that their ordination has become somewhat impure, and they'll go back to Thailand and bring it back. So in fact, you have the situation which the main order in Sri Lanka is called the Siamese order the main order of monks, and the main order in <laughs> Thailand is called the Sri Lankan order, the Sinhalese order. So, uh, you know, it shows the, um, you know, the, the intercourse that went on between the various monastic groups over time. Hmm. But, but what that means, yeah, it's very interesting. Again, this is why it's so modern in a way, that the idea that they would travel around from different countries, and they kind of, in doing so, established... Um, strong relationships between the different countries. And um, it's not exactly like the United Nations, you know, where they would have represented. <laughs> but honestly, some of the aspects of it are similar to the idea of this, an international body with people speaking different languages, all trying to communicate and share ideas like that. Hmm. Right. So, so some of these monks, uh, again, getting back to the, the texts involved, I, I remember from the book that many of these monks would come to uh, Lana with uh, the canon sort of in their heads and present the canon that way. Um, am I am I getting that right? <laughs> well, before I, the, the probably yes, you probably before the writing. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. So one of the things that I investigate in the book is when the monks went to different uh, regions to be reordained. Um, did they bring back copies of the Buddhist canon with them, or were they just trained in the uh, canon orally. So that's one of the things that I try to investigate in my book. And it's very difficult to know exactly. Um, right. Basically, there are accounts. So every time that the monks went to a different country to be reordained, there would be a, a chronicle uh, that would be written by a wise monk at the monastery who would say exactly what happened and keep that, that information for future posterity. And by reading these things, I tried to to, to figure out if uh, they brought back texts with them and new ways of writing, or if they just learned the various texts off by heart. And I tried to discern it based upon the kind of words that were used in the chronicles to describe the mission. Now, obviously, in some chronicles, they specifically say they brought back copies of the canon mm -hmm. with them. So, okay, that's, that's evidence that they did. But other times... Uh, they might not say that specifically, but it might be suggested. So the short answer to your question is, yes, sometimes it seems they brought back copies, and other times they probably didn't, mm -hmm. depending on whether there were enough copies to go around. Don't forget, you know, um, a written manuscript takes a lot of effort. Sure. 
and these are not written in ink either. Uh, the way the manuscripts are written are basically on palm leaves, and a knife is used to carve the letters into the leaf. So it takes a lot of effort, and therefore, uh, in many cases, there might not have been extra manuscripts to give to the monks to bring back to their homeland, even if they had wanted to. Right, so that raises uh, that, that that sparks an idea in my mind, and that is just that uh, if, if you could uh, describe, uh, you know, I, I think of as you're saying there wasn't ink involved, and I think we often think of the the Buddhist canon as these series of books. You know, here at the, the at my school we have we have a whole copy of the canon ourselves, and it's this lovely bound volume um, that you can go right. and refer to. <laughs> uh, but these early texts were not books in that sense. Um, what were they like? What was the what was you know you said palm leaves and ink? So if you could just uh, talk a bit more about what these early texts were, their physicality was like. Sure. Yes. So in the in the Indic world, right, that is to say the world influenced by India, which includes India and Southeast Asia and um, largely Tibet, the main way that manuscripts were written, um, as far as we know from the earliest period, were on palm leaves. They did not use paper at that point. Of course, paper was developed in China later uh, and did spread, but much later uh, mm-hmm. to these countries. So for many, at least a thousand years... Palm leaves were the main thing that are used. And if you can picture a palm leaf, a palm leaf is a very long, thin leaf, right? Often maybe uh, a meter long and a few inches wide. So they would be written in five, four, five, or six lines, and each line is really, really long. Mm-hmm. And that's how you read it. Uh, so it's a very different way of reading and handling it than you would be used to in a Western book. Now, also, the leaves are not bound together like a book, but rather, uh, they're usually written on both sides, and then a hole or two holes are drilled through the middle of the leaves, and then maybe 20 or 30 leaves would be tied together onto a string. So the leaves would hang on a string, and to read them, you would um, kind of lift up a leaf and move it onto um, the part of the string that's empty and just kind of shift them around like that. <laughs> so it's not that easy to, uh, <laughs> to read it. And <laughs> often and people would, in fact, not have a string, but they would just the, there might be a rod that goes through the leaves, and you would actually remo- remove the rod and just read the leaves open uh-huh. and try to keep them in order. And then, you know, when you're done, you'd, you'd kind of stack the leaves up again like maybe like a deck of cards. So picture a deck of cards, right, all stacked up sure. with a hole in the middle that like a little rod would go through or a string to hold them all together. But I did often see um, manuscripts that the leaves had been put back in the wrong order. That's, that's fairly common. <laughs> which, which raises the question, were these, were these books, uh, uh, I don't use the word book incorrectly, but were these books um, uh, read in the way that we would read them or were they used in a different sort of way? Yeah, I would say both. Uh, definitely there were some uh, scholarly monks who would read the books in order to gain the knowledge from them, right? So they would say, well, I want to see what the Buddha said about, um, about uh, the, the dependent origination, right, which is a central concept in Buddhism. So mm-hmm. they would go to a copy of the, um, the collection of leaves, from the Samyutta Nikaya, and they would look up the section on the Paticca Samuppada and read what it says. So, yes, that certainly happens sometimes. But I think the, um, 
the majority of the manuscripts were probably used um, for recitation. In other words, the monks would be reciting something and they would just go from the beginning of that portion till the end and just sort of recite it, uh, using the manuscript as a basis in case they forgot the words. Uh, but even in those cases, uh, largely when monks are reciting something, they've probably memorized it already. But they might have the manuscript there as a, an assistant in case they forget a word, they might look down you know, to see what it says. Mm-hmm. But the other main use of manuscripts, for sure, is as a cultic item. Right, as a, an item that represents some sort of uh, ritual usage. Um, so texts would often be made in order to get good karma, mm-hmm. right, which is often called merit. Uh, so one of the other reasons, in fact, that I picked specifically northern Thailand to do my investigations was that the, in, in northern Thailand there was a scribal tradition of writing colophons, that is to say, a little um, addendum at the end of the text that says a little bit about who the scribe was and why they made the text. So as you can imagine, this is a goldmine for somebody who's investigating the history of texts. Mm -hmm. And uh, the scribes would often say that the reason they are writing it is because they want to make good karma. (laughs) So they want to build up their good karma, which will enable them to be reborn in some sort of better world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's that's uh, the sort of idea of, of writing as a ritual act rather than writing for you know uh, to, to as you say there are there are definitely scholar monks who are, who are doing some sort of what we might consider sort of modern scholarship maybe that's uh, right but there are but most of them probably didn't right and now you also at a couple points in the book mention the, the some of the other ritual aspects of not only these texts but ritual in in general and i know that there are um the the idea of relics in buddhism um is pretty important particularly relics of the buddha himself or you know relics of of disciples and whatnot and it's assumed that these relics have some sort of uh ritual, even magical powers, but you mentioned that early on these texts did not have the same sort of, it wasn't assumed that the texts had the same uh, sort of spiritual weight as relics or other ritual objects, but that that may have changed over time. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what, I believe that is the case. So, um, as the listeners probably know, in Western religions, in particular Judaism, and Islam come to mind. The actual physical object of the holy book, right, mm-hmm. be it the Torah or the Quran, is a very sacred object. And, um, for example, the Torah, the Jewish holy book, is kept um, in an ark, and it's usually a beautifully made uh, structure, and there's the velvet curtain in front of it, and the Torah itself is usually tied up with mm-hmm. velvet strings, and usually, in fact, we're there's a silver crown, right? So obviously that is a book that is uh, given great reverence, right? Uh, and it's paraded through the congregation during the service and people kiss it. So that is a great example of, you know, a book that is greatly honored. The physical book is greatly honored. Right. In the Buddhist world, in the Theravada Buddhist world, especially in the earlier period in Thailand, um, it does not seem like the physical object was um, given that much uh, 
sacred power until a little bit later on. Now, relics in the Buddhist world from early on have been given um, great prestige. As you say, um, they are very important. In most of the great stupas, you know, the great Buddhist monuments, uh, there are legends that inside them is some part of the Buddha or uh, one of his followers. Mm -hmm. And that gives the stupa great power. Um, This is, of course, uh, a theoretical problem in Buddhism in general, because um, the question is, if the Buddha is in nirvana, right, so he's died and he doesn't really exist anymore in any meaningful sense of the term, how does worshipping his relics actually give you um, some sort of blessing, right, because the Buddha isn't there to do the blessing for you. Right, right. Um, So that's, uh, as you know, was a big problem in Buddhism in general. But nevertheless, um, that tradition developed, and it doesn't really seem that writing was felt to have that kind of power until a little bit later on. But yes, eventually, the idea that a written statement of the Buddha, so you know, writing down some passages from the canon, and burying them inside a stupa instead of a relic of the Buddha, later on, that idea did enter Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And um, so the writing gained power. But certainly, uh, in the early period, it wasn't regarded as very powerful. And in many parts of the Buddhist world, it has more writing, has more or less power accorded to it. Certainly, it's rarely viewed with the respect that it is in the Jewish or the Islamic tradition, but sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. And, and why, why is that? Do you think that the, the physical books or the or writing itself wouldn't be um, as important in that earlier period? What was the sort of resistance to writing, if you will? Right. Well, I think that a big part of it simply came out of the uh, Indian milieu in which Buddhism arose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in India, the Hindu tradition, the, the um, memorized word is regarded as the most sacred thing. And the Vedas are, um, as I said, transmitted orally. But it's not just that they happen to be transmitted orally. The fact that they are transmitted orally is a central part of how the whole religion operates. You know, so the word vach, which means you know, the spoken word, is a very important concept in Hinduism. And the way that sound vibrates when it is spoken um, has mystical overtones and this kind of thing. So... There's even some passages that say if if a Brahmin writes something down, then they have to ritually bathe to purify themselves again. You know, so like writing is just something that you don't do. It was viewed as a low caste thing to do. So because Buddhism arose in that world, obviously it wants to partake of the kinds of ideas that that, that the general population has, because Buddhism was a younger religion and trying to establish itself. So if it immediately said that writing was this great thing, then people might say, oh, well, you know, the Buddhists, they like writing, so that must mean that their religion is somehow not as pure as, as ours. So maybe, although his ideas sound interesting, right. we're going to stick with Hinduism. You know? <laughs> um, now, in the Mahayana form of Buddhism, which emerged much later, after King Ashoka, right? So Emperor Ashoka, um, he adopted Buddhism and slowly thereafter became more and more popular. So by the time that Mahayana Buddhism emerged, um, probably the Buddhists did not feel uh, that worried about 
um, what society in general would think of their practices. And therefore, uh, Mahayana Buddhism did adopt writing more seriously than Theravada Buddhism. Mm. Um, one of the most prominent Buddhist scholars, Richard Gombrich, actually believes that uh, Mahayana Buddhism was only made possible because of writing. Namely, that uh, Mahayana had quite different ideas from what early Buddhism said. Hmm. And therefore, monks would probably not have been willing to spend all the time required to memorize the Mahayana texts um, because they thought, you know, they would have thought that these ideas are kind of strange. But <laughs> since writing was available, right, the, people, the few people who did sort of initiate the idea of Mahayana were able to use writing to record their ideas. And therefore, even though they were few in number, uh, you know, writing is very powerful in preserving ideas and they could preserve them. Uh, and therefore, the religion, that new form of the religion, was able to uh, spread more widely than it otherwise would have because it would have gotten resistance from the mainstream monks who would not have bothered to spend time memorizing. <laughs> um, so this but then once it got stopped... You know. Right, once it, once it got started, it can't stop. <laughs> right. Um, so this reminds me of something else in your book where you mentioned that when writing first comes into uh, northern Thailand, there are some monks who are feeling threatened by uh, this new technology. Um, can you say more about that? Why would they feel this? Is it is is some of these what you're saying here sort of related to that idea of feeling sort of threatened by these new ideas or or a new way of practicing? Right. Well, certainly, let's be clear. I, I know it's difficult to sum up here the, the argument of the book in you know one hour. So I'm trying, and it is a somewhat complicated argument. So I try, but I try to make it as simple as possible for the listeners. So basically, let's be clear. Once writing emerged uh, uh, and was used, that doesn't mean that suddenly the whole tradition became written, right? So, uh -huh. yes, for the first few hundred years, it was completely oral, that's for sure. Then, uh, writing became used, but very, very uh, scantily for recording of religious texts. Uh, the tradition, in fact, holds that... Um, you remember at the beginning of our interview, I said that the first evidence for writing is about 250 BC. However, it's still another 200 years after that, that uh, it's likely that the Buddhist texts themselves were written down. So remember, we said that King Ashoka introduced writing to India, but that doesn't mean that at that point they started to write all the Buddhist texts down. Mm -hmm. They only did that another 200 years later. And even then, that was probably done very infrequently, you know, just as a, let's say, like an um, investment plan, you know, in case <laughs> for some reason there was like an epidemic and all the monks who memorized the text died. Then we would have to go to the vault and pick out this written one and kind of reestablish it. But I don't think that writing was used commonly mm -hmm. to transmit Buddhist texts for hundreds and hundreds of years after that period. So that means that, you know, there was a written version of the tradition and an oral version of the tradition. And therefore, the monks who memorized the oral tradition, right, they would have felt that a lot of their prestige in society came from how many texts they memorized. And they would even get titles, you know, uh, based upon how many texts they memorized. So you would get a lot of prestige if you knew, you know, all three 
uh, sections of the Buddhist canon. And you'd have a little less prestige if you only knew one section of the Buddhist canon, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So once writing comes, then these guys who are memorizing it, they could obviously feel that their position, their prestige, the honor given to them is threatened by writing because you know, they are not as necessary anymore. Uh, so it's, it's reasonable to believe that they would not have been that enthusiastic about the idea of writing down the texts. Also, they might have felt that you know, once you write them down, that means that uh, there's no person there necessarily to make sure that you are reading it correctly. Mm-hmm. And you could then put your own ideas into it or misunderstand it, right? There's something dangerous about the idea of writing because an individual, you know, if a book falls into the wrong hands, <laughs> it could be read and then somebody will think the wrong things about what they're reading because there's not a learned person present in the room with them to explain, no, no, I know it says this, but it actually means that, right? right? right. So you could see why traditional monks would be threatened by this idea. I mean, if you look at the West, you know, what was one of the first books that, that, that was banned in the West once the printing press got started. The Bible, right? right? Uh, because the church didn't want the Bible uh, falling into the hands of common people who could then interpret it in ways that were not regarded as proper by the church. Which, so the same sort of thing in, in hindsight was probably you know, in Buddhism. Uh, a valid concern. <laughs> yeah, they were right. <laughs> exactly. They were right to be worried about these things. Um, so, so this uh, brings me to my my other question, and that is that uh, it seems that uh, we are now currently in um, another sort of technological change in terms of media and communication. Um, obviously, in the in the twentieth and twenty first century, we have a whole different kind of technological change happening with you know first radio and TV, and now the internet and social media. Um, do, do you see any way that? some of the things that you're learning from 700 years ago in, in Thailand have some relevance to the way that technology is changing Buddhism um, in the contemporary world. Yes, I've heard about the internet. <laughs> it sounds very interesting. I'll have to look into it. Um, I know this is, this is <laughs> taking you outside of your book. So <laughs> That's right. Well, it's interesting that you say that because... My next project, the book that I'm working on currently, is precisely about um, more modern communication technologies and how they are used by Buddhists and how they might affect the nature of Buddhism. So, um, first of all, let me just back up for one second, because since you mentioned this idea of how it changes the nature of Buddhism, I do want to point out that um, as writing got more and more used in some of the Thai monastic orders, it does seem that those monastic orders became stricter about the interpretation of some of the rules. And you, you see this kind of thing in Protestantism as well, uh, when you know, people went back to the, uh, the Bible and started reading exactly what it says, then you see the emergence of this new phenomena that they call fundamentalism, right? Where mm-hmm. because the, the, the written word is staring at you from the page and it says this, people tend to interpret it in a stricter way than if it's delivered in an oral way and it's kind of floating, the words are kind of floating around, you don't see them in front of you. So maybe, um, I know this is a little bit counterintuitive actually to many people. In other words, the idea that an older, more traditional way of doing things, you know, having the elders 
recite something orally to younger people and then they memorize and recite it, you would think that that would lead to a more conservative interpretation of some of the ideas. Mm -hmm. But in fact, sometimes the written version leads to a more conservative interpretation simply because a word is a physical object and you see it in front of you and it says what it says, you know. Um, and you might feel that, well, it says to do this, it says that the world is going to end on such and such a day or whatever. <laughs> and therefore you just feel that, you know, there's some truth to that. Right. Whereas if somebody says it, you know, the second they stop saying it, the words disappear, right? So the words don't have as much, as much weight. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I think that writing did influence some of the, mo the monastic groups towards a more conservative interpretation of the rules, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, the, there's a list of rules, and this is what it says, so we're going to follow them. Now, in the modern world, um, I have found that um, Buddhism is quite a popular topic uh, to be for discussion in internet forums and um, social media and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So Buddhism s lends itself well to these modern technologies. Um, I think that there's some connection. Maybe people learn a little bit about Buddhism and the idea of um, the idea of the interdependence of all things. It is a core idea in Buddhism. And sure enough, with the internet, you know, it can link up people who, like you and I right now, for example, who are not in the same place. And that, that might make people think that some of these crazy Buddhist ideas, that things that are different, that appear separate, are actually in some way connected through the chain of causation. You know, the Internet suggests that things that are far away and otherwise disconnected can be connected through electricity. Uh, so maybe that gets people interested in Buddhist ideas uh, by just using the internet a lot. That's one of the ideas that I'm researching now. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, uh, for, for some time, there has been available on the internet uh, the whole uh, corpus of Pali-Buddhist texts. And that, of course, radically changes the way that you can access them because you can search them in ways that you never could before uh, for any word and count the occurrences of words this kind of thing. Right. So it definitely changes uh, the way that the texts are used by scholars and by practitioners, as far as I can tell. So you said this is, this is the, your next project, then, is working on, on contemporary technology. That's right, absolutely. Uh, so it, you, I've talked a little, a little bit about the Internet. I do want to mention that one thing I noticed that when I was in Thailand is when you go to, um, like, a, um, this was before... Uh, let's see, this was before, DV, uh, sorry, before MP3s became very popular. So they still had these things called record stores, right? <laughs> I know those are going the way, the way of the dodo nowadays. But yeah, so you know, I was in Thailand and I went into record stores and you'd have records and tapes being sold there. And a remarkably large amount of the tapes were recordings of monks giving uh, lectures about the Dharma. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did notice that that is a very common way that people in modern Thailand come into contact with some of the teachings of Buddhism. So we call this a, a secondary orality, right? In other words, you had the oral world, then you have writing, and then you, through technology, you actually go beyond writing back into orality, where people <laughs> sit and listen 
to a tape or listen to the radio. There's common radio broadcasts of monks giving various talks about the teachings of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. So it's a very common way that people come into contact with them. And, and it seems like, uh, you know, with the internet that even happens, again, as you're saying, this sort of global uh, interconnected way. I know there are plenty of other, you know, we, here we are on a podcast, but there are other podcasts that do uh, just Dharma talks or whatnot. Um, Absolutely. Yep. And I was just meditating on Second Life. My character on Second <laughs> Life was just meditating a few days ago. And then after the meditation, there was a talk by a monk who's, who was physically in Thailand. But you could see his avatar, and it's interesting that they used that Sanskrit word, right. uh, avatar. You could see his avatar dressed in robes, and you know, he was speaking. It really was quite an amazing experience. <laughs> Well, um, I think we're coming up on the end of uh, our time here together. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, Daniel. Uh, Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I, and I hope the semester and grading wraps up for you, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing your, your future work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. So thanks so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Daniel Weidlinger, author of Spreading the Dhamma, Writing, Orality, and Textual Transmission in Buddhist Northern Thailand for the New Books and Buddha Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Thanks for listening.